Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The city of Florence was founded by none other than Julius Caesar back in A.D. 59 as a place where old soldiers could retire comfortably from war. It was originally called Florentia, which means flourishing. There's an early legend about the city involving an Armenian prince named Miniato, who settled down to living life as a hermit in a cave outside the city proper. Occasionally he would wander back into the public square and preach to the local pagans. But when the Emperor Decius began persecuting Christians, he had Miniato arrested and subsequently beheaded. According to the legend, Miniato took his own beheading with a surprising level of dignity, which is to say, according to the stories, he actually picked up his severed head, placed it back on his shoulders, then strolled out of town in order to die back in the cave he called home. Today, one of the most beautiful churches in all of Italy, the San Mediato al Monte, stands near that cave. By the 14th century, Florence had grown rich in the trades of woolen cloth and banking. And during that time, it actually became one of the five largest cities in all of Europe. The Italian Renaissance began in Florence. Art, music, mathematics, science, architecture, and astronomy all saw a major surge forward during this period. The modern banking system, and in particular, the idea of credit, was created in Florence. Amerigo Vespucci, the renowned explorer and mapmaker who gave America its name, was born there. One could argue that the modern world was truly born out of Florence, as people began to shrug off superstition and look to science and mathematics for answers to life's imponderable questions. Of all the wealthy families that came out of this prosperous time in the city, none were wealthier or more famous than the Medicis. The family first came to prominence in 1434, and this wealthy mercantile clan were the real rulers of the city from behind the scenes, with all the influence their money bought. Among their many lasting contributions to Italian society and the world as a whole, was their contributions to the arts. Of all the Medicis, none was more beneficial to the arts than Lorenzo Medici, a.k.a. Lorenzo Magnifico, or the Magnificent. He was the grandson of Giovanni Medici, who started the family's dynasty. Lorenzo poured tons of money into the art scene, gathering around him an artistic dream team of such luminaries as Leonardo da Vinci, Sandro Botticelli, and Michelangelo. But being so rich and powerful also meant the family had many enemies. In 1478, a rival banking family, the Patsies, attempted to break the rule of the Medicis. On a Sunday afternoon in April, a gang of Patsy murderers attacked Lorenzo the Magnificent and his brother Giuliano during Mass at the Duomo. Giuliano was killed during the attack, 
but Lorenzo just barely managed to escape with his life by locking himself in the sacristy. Although he was mortally wounded, Lorenzo lived long enough to name his attackers. The citizens of Florence were outraged that the Patsies thought they could get away with such a brazen attack on their favorite son, and in the sanctity of church of all places. A bloodthirsty mob went after the gang of murderers to mete out some citizen justice. They hung one of the gang's leaders, Jacopo di Pazzi, from a window of the Palazzo Vecchio. Afterwards, they stripped his body of its clothes, then dragged him through the streets and dumped the corpse in the Arno River. This event ushered in a dark time for the city of Florence. By the end of the 14th century, an epidemic of syphilis brought back by explorers from the New World had ravaged the city. It was a disease unlike any the citizens of Florence had ever seen before. People suffering from the disease were shunned and led to suffer a horrific and lonely death. This particular strain of syphilis caused sufferers to break out in huge weeping sores and would often lead to the skin of their faces sagging and falling off before driving the patient mad in their dying days. In 1494, Charles VIII of France invaded Tuscany. Piero the Unfortunate was the Grand Maestro of Florence at the time, and he surrendered the city to Charles VIII without putting up much of a fight. This so enraged the citizens of Florence that they rose up against their wealthy masters, driving the Medici family out and looting their homes of all their wealth. Soon after, a man named Savonarola, also known as the Mad Monk of San Marco, stepped up and seized control of the city, stirring up religious fervor and declaring the city to now be a Christian republic. According to the Mad Monk, only by renouncing their sins and turning their backs on their former decadent lifestyles could the Florentines be saved. Transgressors were regularly burned alive or hung in the town square for all sorts of offenses, including sodomy, which up until that point had been considered an acceptable practice. The Mad Monk instigated what has become known as the Bonfire of the Vanities, in which many homes were raided for all sorts of sinful artifacts, including mirrors, pagan books, cosmetics, musical instruments, games, and secular paintings. Everything sinful was heaped together in the piazza and set ablaze. It's believed that the artist Botticelli, who had become a true believer, actually burned many of his own paintings. It's also believed that many of Michelangelo's masterpieces went up in the fire as well. But this new religious fervor didn't last. Too many people missed the old ways, and within a few years the taverns and gambling houses reopened. The Pope excommunicated the Mad Monk and had him executed in the same piazza where his bonfire of the vanities had occurred. He was tortured for weeks on end before finally being granted the mercy of being burned alive. Today, the city of Florence is a major tourist destination, with people flocking to the land where the Renaissance was born to soak in the art and architecture. The citizens of Florence have a reputation for being rather reserved and closed off. They are hard-working and serious people, punctual to a fault. They're proud of their contributions to the modern world, and sober enough to acknowledge the darkest parts of their history. For you see in this city that gave the world so much beauty, the darkness never really went away. It lie there festering beneath the surface for many years, in a place where sunlight never falls, in a place where monsters dwell and grow. And if you don't believe in monsters, well, the city of Florence had one. 
a brutal killer who murdered 14 people and who helped inspire the fictional serial killer Hannibal Lecter. A killer who revealed to the world the dark underbelly of Florentine society, unveiling secrets that many people tried desperately to keep hidden. A killer who has never been caught. I'm Nate Hale, currently dining on a fine meal of some liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And this is The Conspirators. Traditional Italian families tend to be quite tight-knit. In fact, it's common for single young people to continue living with their parents well into adulthood, at least until they get married, move out, and start a family of their own. One of the primary disadvantages to this situation is that it can make it awkward for a young couple to experience a romantic evening alone together. Throughout Florence and elsewhere across Italy, it remained common up until fairly recently for most young people who wanted to hook up to do so in their cars parked out on lovers' lanes. In fact, it's a well-worn joke in Italy that one in three babies was conceived in a vehicle. All of which brings us to the morning of June 7th, 1981, when reporter Mario Spezzi was at his desk at the Italian newspaper, La Nazione, when he got the call that police had found something terrible. It's impossible to tell the story of the monster of Florence without telling you about Mario Spezzi as well. Spetsy wasn't even the regular crime reporter for the paper at the time the call came in. The regular crime reporter was off that day, leaving Spetsy on call. But then again, nothing important ever happened on a Sunday. What did happen was a pair of bodies were discovered in the Via del Rigo, a sprawling private estate on the outskirts of the city. There at the foot of a single cypress tree near an olive grove, a car was parked, Inside the car was the body of a young man slumped sideways against the driver's window. He almost looked like he could be asleep. Only a little black mark in his temple that lined up with a spider-webbed hole in the window gave any indication that he was dead. The girl's body was found some distance away amid a patch of wildflowers. She had also been shot, except the killer hadn't stopped there. After the killer shot her in the car... He dragged her out to the field and used a knife to cut out her vagina. The man was identified as 30-year-old Giovanni Foggi, an employee of the local electrical utility. The woman was 21-year-old Carmelo Demnuccio, who worked at the Gucci Fashion House in Florence. The pair were engaged to be married, and they had been out on a date the night before. It was established that the murders had occurred sometime before midnight. Police believed the couple had driven down to the secluded area to be alone together when the killer came across them. Some members of the press were quick to compare the crime to that of Jack the Ripper. The Ripper had shown some medical skill, and so had this killer been in his cutting out of Camarilla Denuccio's vagina. The medical examiner determined that the killer had used a sharp knife with some sort of notch in the blade, a scuba knife perhaps. Mario Spezzi had been to crime scenes before, but he had never witnessed one so brutal as the one he went to that day in June 1981. After the killing of the two young lovers became tied to so many other similar slayings, it was Spezzi who went on to give the murderer a name in the press 
Il Mostro di Firenze, The Monster of Florence. Despite the sexual nature of the crime, the killer had gone out of his way to avoid touching the body as much as possible. Right away, La Nazione was able to tie the killing to another similar murder that had occurred in the North Hills of Florence in 1974. On September 15th of that year, 19-year-old Pasquale Gentilcore and his 18-year-old girlfriend, Stefania Patini, were found dead on a country lane north of Florence. Just like the 1981 case, the couple had gone to the secluded area to have sex when the killer stepped up to the Fiat and shot them both through the windows. Afterwards, the killer stabbed Pasquale five times, then dragged Stefania's body out of the car and disfigured her with 97 stab wounds, most of which were centered around her lower abdomen. Her body was also found with a branch inserted into her vagina. The similarities between the crimes was too much for police to ignore, and before long they were able to determine that the crimes were indeed related. By a stroke of luck, the shell casings from 1974 were still in police custody. They were compared against the shell casings found at the 1981 attack and determined that they had both come from the same weapon, a long-barreled 22 caliber Beretta firing Winchester Series H copper-jacketed rounds. Not only that, but ballistics experts were able to determine that the bullets had all come from the same box of 50 rounds, and that the gun they were fired from had a defective firing pin that left an unmistakable indentation on the rim of each shell. Police also learned that earlier the day she was murdered, Stefania had confessed to a friend that she'd had an encounter with an unknown man who, quote, scared her. But unfortunately, she didn't give any other details. The police investigation led to one more surprising discovery. With so many people spending their weekends having sex in cars, it turns out an organized subculture of voyeurs had sprung up as well. A group of pervs who spent their nights spying on people in the act. This group had even given themselves a name, Indiani, or Indians, because they crept around in the dark. Many of them came prepared with sophisticated spy equipment like night vision cameras and suction cup microphones. They were so organized that they had actually had regular patrol territories and communicated with one another to stay out of each other's areas. Police quickly zeroed in on one of these Indiani, an ambulance driver named Enzo Spalletti, and arrested him. It was his area where the June 1981 murders occurred. But when the killer struck again a few months later while the man was in custody, it became clear that he wasn't their guy. On October 23rd, 26-year-old Stefano Baldi and 24-year-old Susanna Camby were killed in the vicinity of Calenzano, north of Florence. Once again, they'd both been shot to death in their car, and once again, the killer had dragged the woman from the car and cut out her vagina. The monster of Florence became a media sensation. Circulation at La Nazione shot up to the highest point in its history. Spezzi became known as the number one expert on the crimes. He wrote 57 articles on the case in a single month. One of those articles he wrote told of a priest who became a suspect when it was discovered that he liked to frequent prostitutes for the purpose of shaving their pubic hair. Another article told about a psychic who spent a night in the cemetery near one of the victim's graves, hoping to have a vision revealing the killer. Spetsy became famous for focusing on the facts of the investigation and dispelling much of the rumors and innuendo that were spreading. 
Along with having sex in cars, apparently another major pastime of Florentines was coming up with conspiracies everywhere. On June 19, 1982, two more victims were killed. They were 22-year-old mechanic Paolo Menardi and his 20-year-old sweetheart Antonella Migliorini. They'd spent the evening at a large gathering of young people drinking Cokes and eating ice cream in the Piazza del Poplo before capping off the night with a drive in the country to be alone. This time things didn't go quite the way they had in the previous crimes. For one thing, the female victim wasn't mutilated. And for another, the male victim was alive when he was found. An ambulance rushed him to the hospital, but he died before ever regaining consciousness. Evidence in this case showed Minardi tried to throw the car into reverse when he saw the killer approaching, but he ended up getting the rear wheel stuck in a ditch. The monster shot out each of the car's headlights before crossing the road and firing two more rounds, one into each of the young people's heads. He then yanked Minardi out of the driver's seat and slipped behind the steering wheel, trying unsuccessfully to drive the car out of the ditch. Police found the car keys about 300 feet from the car where the killer had dropped them. They also found an empty medicine bottle for a dietary supplement called Norzatam that couldn't be traced to any individual. This killing showed that the monster was an uncommonly cool customer. The area where the couple was murdered wasn't as isolated as the earlier murders, and several cars passed through there right around the time when the crimes occurred. It was one of those passerbys who eventually stopped to see if the couple in the ditch needed help when he discovered the bodies. Twelve days after this pair of killings, an anonymous letter arrived at La Nazione containing a yellowed newspaper clipping from 1968 that detailed an eerily similar double murder of a man and woman in a parked car. Scrawled on the article was a note that they should take another look at this crime. Investigators dug through the old case file and discovered that the shell casings were still in evidence. The casings were a match to all the other crimes, right down to the telltale marking from the faulty firing pin. This only further confused investigators, because it turned out the 1968 killing had been solved. The victims were a married woman named Barbara Loci and her lover, Antonio Lobianco, who were ambushed in their car and shot to death by Barbara's husband, Stefano Mele. In the backseat of the car while the murder took place was Stefano's six-year-old son, Natalino. The child woke in the middle of the night, and after finding his mother dead, he ran to a house nearby to tell the startled homeowner that his mommy and his uncle, which is what he called his mother's many lovers, were dead. A paraffin test of Stefano's hands the following morning proved he had recently fired a gun. Eventually, after a lengthy interrogation, Stefano broke down and confessed to the crime. But it was impossible for Stefano Mele to be the monster of Florence, because he was in prison at the time the 1981 murders occurred, and living in a halfway house in Verona ever since his release. Of course, when news of this forgotten pair of murders broke out, it set off a media frenzy of reporters who wanted to interview Stefano. Spetsy managed to get an interview with him under false pretenses when he showed up at the halfway house with a cameraman and told them he was making a documentary about the halfway house's good work. Stefano Mele was mostly rambling and unhelpful. 
He was a nervous little man who mumbled mostly confusing answers. Then, at the end of the interview, he said something that disturbed Spetsy. Stefano said that they needed to figure out where the pistol was. Otherwise, there will be more murders, and they will continue. They. Plural. This led Spetsy to realize something that had eluded the police up until that point. That Stefano had not been alone the night of his wife's murder. Spetsy believed the murders had been a clan killing in which others from a Stefano Sardinian community had participated. The Sardinians were a notoriously closed group who operated under a strict code of silence called Omerta. This stage of the investigation even came to be called the Sardinian Connection, since all clues seemed to keep leading back to the Sardinians. Police soon focused their investigation on three Sardinian brothers, Francesco, Salvatore, and Giovanni Vinci. All of them had been Barbara's lovers at one time or another, and one or more of them had been present at her killing. They all had a terrible and violent reputation. Giovanni, the oldest, had been accused of raping his own sister. The youngest, Francesco, was well known for his hot temper and his ability with a knife. The middle brother, Salvatore, was suspected of murdering his wife, Barbara, and staging it to look like suicide. There were rumors that someone removed their infant son, Antonio, from the mother's bed before turning up the gas in their home and suffocating her. Police arrested Francesco first, but then in September 1983, another pair of murders occurred. It was a German couple who were murdered in their Volkswagen camper. Police believed that the killer made a mistake in killing them because the two lovers were both men, one of whom had long blonde hair, which may have caused the monster to mistake him for a woman. But the police refused to let Francesco go, believing that one of the other brothers probably got their hands on the gun and used it in an attempt to free Francesco. Police became suspicious of Salvatore's son Antonio and arrested him on weapons charges. The prosecutor on the case came to believe that it was Antonio who had stood outside the camper and killed the two German men in an attempt to free his uncle. But this was only a theory with no hard evidence to back it up. They grilled Antonio for hours, but were unable to get him to confess to anything. They were eventually forced to let him go, keeping Francesco in custody. The case against the Vinci's continued to fall apart when newspaper headlines appeared declaring that the monsters are two, naming two more suspects, Giovanni Mele, Stefano's brother, and Piero Mucciarini, his brother-in-law. Things became even more complicated when two more victims were found on June 30, 1984. They were 21-year-old Claudio Stefanacci and his girlfriend, 18-year-old Pia Gilda Rontini. They were both shot and stabbed, as in the other crimes. But in this instance, the killer also took the woman's left breast, along with her pubic region. Public outcry was at its peak at this point. Twelve people had been murdered, and the police were still no closer to catching the killer. A special strike team known as the Anti-Monster Squad was formed from members of both the police and the Carabinieri. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
The Italian government offered a reward of roughly $290,000 for information leading to the monster's arrest. Warning posters went up all over the countryside, alerting young people to the dangers they faced by parking alone in the woods. The last two killings attributed to the monster of Florence occurred in the summer of 1985. Two young French tourists were camping in a tent in the woods when the killer approached them sometime during the night and made a 12-inch cut in the fly. The campers heard the noise and unzipped the tent to see what was going on. That was when the killer opened fire. He shot the woman in the face, killing her instantly, but he only wounded the man in the wrist. The man was an amateur sprinter, and he took off running for the trees. But the killer managed to chase him down and slash his throat, nearly decapitating him. The blood sprayed high enough to stain branches ten feet high. After the man was dead, the killer returned to the woman and mutilated her corpse, cutting away her left breast and vagina. The following Tuesday, one of the female prosecutors in the case received an envelope in the mail containing the French woman's left nipple. The killer had cut out lettering for the address out of magazines and had been careful not to lick the envelope. The experience was enough to cause the prosecutor to quit both the case and the legal profession entirely. Meanwhile, the remaining prosecutors, knowing they didn't have enough evidence to get a conviction against Salvatore Vinci for the monster murders, decided to try to convict him for the suffocation of his wife Barbara. But the trial was a complete disaster, with terrible witnesses and even shoddier evidence. It all ended in an acquittal for the man. After that, police and prosecutors had enough. They had been thoroughly humiliated, and they declared the Sardinian connection a dead end. The anti-monster squad was reorganized, and the new chief inspector, Ruggiero Perugini, decided to go back to square one. He looked at all the evidence, then did a records check of all known violent criminals, in particular those with a history of sexual violence. This led him to focus the investigation on a 69-year-old Tuscan farmer named Pietro Pachani, a violent alcoholic who had been convicted of sexually assaulting his daughters. His time in prison coincided with the gaps in the killings between 1974 and 1981. In 1951, he had been arrested for bashing in the skull of a traveling salesman, who he caught seducing his fiancée, then raping the fiancée next to the man's corpse. On paper, he looked like a promising suspect. Police raided his home and conducted a 12-day search, during which they found a reproduction of Botticelli's Primavera, a painting which depicts a nymph with flowers pouring from her mouth. This reminded the chief inspector of the way a gold chain had been found draped across the mouth of one of the female victims. He was convinced he had his man. But the search proved disappointing, until Inspector Perugini proudly announced to the press that they had found an unfired twenty-two bullet in the garden that experts say may have been ejected from the infamous Beretta. Later, the carbonari received a package containing a piece of a twenty-two Beretta wrapped in a torn rag, with a note saying it had come from a place where Pacciani often went. Police found the other piece of the torn rag in Pacciani's garage. Pacciani was arrested in January 1993 and charged with the murders, but the public remained unconvinced. It was difficult for people to believe that a drunken, semi-literate peasant like Pacciani could possibly be the boogeyman they were all afraid of. Nonetheless, Pacciani was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But during the mandatory appeal, the prosecutor assigned to the case took the unusual step of refusing to prosecute, stating a lack of evidence as his reason. 
The fact that the then 60-year-old Pacciani, who had a bad heart, bad knees, and a laundry list of other health ailments, would have been able to chase down a 25-year-old amateur runner seems laughable. But that was the theory the police stuck with. By February 1996, Pacciani was acquitted. A higher court sent the case back to be retried, but Pacciani died in 1998 before he could return to court. But while all this was still going on, the police refused to be stymied by anything such as a lack of evidence. On the very day of Pacciani's acquittal, the police came forward with several new witnesses of rather dubious reputation, who claimed that Pacciani was part of a satanic cult who had been hired by a mysterious Florentine doctor to collect female body parts for black mass rituals. At first, the police refused to release the names of these surprise witnesses, and the judge in the case refused to allow their testimony to be entered into evidence. Meanwhile, more and more of the case the police had built against Pacciani began unraveling. Mario Spezzi managed to record an interview with a police officer who admitted he thought the chief inspector may have planted the 22 bullet on Pacciani's property. The rag and gun parts were determined to have been manufactured clothes, although it was never determined precisely by who. Even still, the television station refused to air the damning interview Spetsy recorded. Someone powerful had quashed the story before it even aired. Spetsy went ahead and published the allegations anyway, and was sued for libel, but Spetsy won the case. He continued to investigate the monster of Florence despite being continually stymied by the police investigators themselves. He got his hands on an FBI profile of the killer that stated the Bureau's belief that the killer was an organized planner who staked out the locations, waiting for victims to come to him. Spetsy always believed that the key to revealing the monster's identity was with the gun. They knew that the gun used in the crimes had once belonged to Salvatore Vinci, but Salvatore couldn't be the monster. The gun had to have passed from Salvatore Vinci's hands to that of the real killer. Then Spetsy got what he believed to be the break he'd been looking for, when he learned that four months before the 1974 murder, Salvatore Vinci had reported a break-in of his home to the police. Salvatore claimed that nothing had been stolen, but Spetsy knew that the man wouldn't be stupid enough to admit that the person had broken in had stolen a murder weapon from him. What was most interesting was the person Salvatore Vinci implicated in the break-in, none other than his own son, Antonio. Spetsy believed that Salvatore informed police about the break-in to cover for himself in case Antonio did anything terrible with the gun. At the time of the 1974 killings, Antonio would have only been about 14 or 15, which seems a little young, but not impossible for him to be the perpetrator of the crimes. By the time of the 1981 killings, Antonio would have been 21 years old. Spetsy knew he needed to face the man he believed to be the monster of Florence himself. He went to the man's apartment and used a phony name to get himself buzzed in. Antonio recognized him immediately and welcomed him warmly inside. Antonio Vinci was tanned and well-muscled, with a cocky, self-assured attitude. He was cagey throughout most of the interview, offering only vague speculation as to the killer's motivations. During the interview, Antonio casually admitted that he once held a knife to his father's throat, a scuba knife, which you may recall is the type of knife the medical examiner believed to have been used in the murders. Spetsy couldn't stand it anymore. 
He came right out and asked Antonio if he could have taken the twenty-two from his father, since he was the only one with easy access to it. Antonio laughed this off and said that if he'd gotten his hands on the gun, he'd have shot his father in the head with it. Spetsy then pointed out to Antonio that he knew the man had been living up near Lake Como from 1975 to 1980, a time when there were no killings going on near Florence. Antonio grinned broadly and wistfully told him those were the best years of his life. Spetsy finally came out and asked Antonio outright if he was the monster of Florence. Antonio barely hesitated before saying, No, I like my pussy whole. When the interview was over, Antonio led Spetsy out of the apartment. Then he leaned in and whispered coarsely in his ear, Listen carefully. I never joke around. Spetsy didn't know if this was a threat or not. But unfortunately, that's more or less where the investigation into the monster of Florence ended. No more murders were attributed to the monster, and the investigation would eventually just fizzle out. Mario Spezzi was targeted by some of the police investigators who actually drummed up some false charges that he himself had fabricated evidence and might have even been the monster himself. After spending 23 days in jail, Spezzi was eventually absolved of all charges and would go on to receive awards for his crusading journalism. He died in September 2016. Author Thomas Harris studied the case of the monster Florence while doing research for his Hannibal Lecter novels, and actually modeled the fictional chief inspector in his book Hannibal after the real head of the anti-monster squad, Ruggiero Perugini. On November 2nd, 2007, the half-naked body of a British girl named Meredith Kircher was found on the floor of her Perugia, Italy apartment. She had been stabbed and there was evidence of sexual assault and robbery. Within a week, there were some in the press and the police who were attempting to tie this girl's murder in with the same alleged satanic cult that some people claimed was at the bottom of the Monster of Florence murders. The investigation would eventually turn from satanic rituals to accusing the girl's roommate, Amanda Knox, an American student who spent four years in an Italian prison before being acquitted and released for lack of evidence. But that's a story for another day. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Monster of Florence, then I highly recommend you check out the book, The Monster of Florence, by Douglas Preston and Mario Spezzi, which covers a lot more detail about the crimes than I could contain in a dozen episodes. I wanted to give a shout-out to my latest Patreon supporter, Andrew. Thanks a bunch. And if you're interested in helping support the show yourself, I wanted to let you know that patrons can get all sorts of bonuses like t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and access to our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. I also invite you to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your reviews and ratings helps our show grow and helps spread the word about us. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We're also available on our very own website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.